Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Good Humans podcast with me, Cooper Chapman chatting to the world's best about the inspiring stories that got them to where they are today. Hello to all of you good humans out there and welcome to guest episode number 60 of Good Humans podcast. Today's episode is a very special one with a man who is probably the smartest person I've ever spoken to and it was great fun. Today's episode is brought to you by the great people over at Arepa. Arepa is a brain function drink. I've been speaking about them a lot lately and for very good reason. I'm a huge advocate for taking good care of our body and our brain is probably the most important thing in our body and that's why Arepa is a must-have product. Arepa was actually designed and developed by the incredible guest we do have today, Dr. Andrew Scully. If you listen to today's episode and you think, wow, this guy's really smart and you think, I'd like to learn more about him. Make sure you check out the Drink Arepa website, um, drinkarepa.com. Use code GOODHUMAN and you'll get 25% off. And yeah, we do talk a lot about the product at the end of this podcast, so make sure you listen out for that. But yeah, Drink Arepa is something that I'm using every day and something that I look forward to when I wake up in the morning to put into my body because I know how great it makes me feel. So make sure you use the code GOODHUMAN over on their website, drinkarepa, drinkarepa.com. And I'll leave that in the show notes as well. Today's episode, Professor Andrew Scully, PhD. And what was a really cool chat. He's such a legend, just a really dope guy that we had a really nice conversation. So he's a professor of human psychopharmacology based out of Melbourne, Melbourne down in um, Victoria, Australia. His research aims to understand the mood and cognitive effects of drugs and alcohol and also um, nutra interventions, which is nutrition, nutrients and nutraceuticals and how they affect our body and our brain specifically. So specifically, he's interested in the human brain and behavioral processes underlying these effects. This research aims to understand acute cognitive enhancement and develop interventions to treat neurocognitive decline and mental health conditions. So as you all know, mental health is very important to me, and that is the very baseline of this podcast, is to give you guys some good insights on ways to improve our mental health, and this conversation has got plenty of that involved. If you do enjoy today's episode, please hit that follow button, hit subscribe, share it with a friend. That's what this podcast is about, me learning from very, very smart and just really awesome people, and then sharing it with you. So if you learned something in today's episode, make sure you pass it on to a friend. It's so easy to click the share button, send a text message, add it on your Instagram story, tag both myself and Drink a Rapper over on uh, Instagram and yeah, leave us a re- review if you're enjoying it. But let's jump into the chat because this one's a great one. Welcome to Good Humans Podcast, Professor Andrew Scully. How you going, mate? I'm good. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Very excited to talk to you. Yeah, this is neuroscience is something that is at the very top of my list for topics that fascinate me and getting to speak to one of the world's leading neuroscientists in yourself is 
something that I'm very grateful for, but very excited for as well. So I guess to start off, maybe let the listeners know what you do in neuroscience. Uh, well, I'm a human psychopharmacologist, so um, I look at the way in which different substances that we ingest affect the brain. And that ranges from substances which we know are impairing, like drugs and alcohol, uh, alcohol hangover, those sort of um, effects on mental function, things like memory and attention. But I guess my main area is looking at cognitive enhancement and ways in which we can improve cognitive function, both acutely, so um, in the aftermath of a single dose of something like caffeine, um, although that also has its downsides. Um, and I'm particularly interested in the ways in which certain what I call neutral interventions, so nutrients, whole diet, um, enriched components which originate from usually botanical sources can um, improve or have the potential to improve mood and mental function. Wow, this is going to be a fascinating conversation and I can't wait for it. Um, some topics that I think my listeners are going to really get some stuff out of. I think nutrition and how it affects our brain is such a good one because it's a very clear you can take this and it'll like it'll have positive effects. So we will get into that later, but I want to just start off to get to know you a bit better. So where were you born? Where did you grow up? And what was school like for you? Um, well, I, I was born actually in, in the UK. Um, I'm, I'm a, a pom, um, <laughs> as you can probably tell. Uh, and, yeah, I, I was born in uh, a place called Rotherham, a little um, ex-mining vi village in Yorkshire in the north of England. Uh, we moved um, we moved down to the Midlands to a place called Northamptonshire when I was eight, and I lost my Yorkshire accent within about two weeks, according to my parents, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Uh, yeah, and went to the uh, I actually went to a tiny little school with I think um, thirty pupils in all age between. Um, five and 11 and then went to the, the huge local comprehensive school which was more like uh, I think a thousand people or more pupils or more um, and yeah I think I was always quite interested in both um, you know arts and science uh, something which has continued to this day actually and um, you know I'm really into things you know, just been to a music festival over the weekend I, you know, I play play my own music and I was really interested in that side of things but became a bit more drawn I think to to science um my my grandmother um suffered from dementia somebody I was very close to her and um she um she uh, had a dementia which I now know is what we we call um, dementia with Lewy bodies but at the time, you know, it was sort of thought of that she, she had this kind of mix of somewhere between Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. So I think that was probably one of the main drivers that got me interested in uh, in the brain. Um, I went on, I actually took a few years off before doing my, um, my uh, degree. So I worked as a lab technician in... Um, in a, a lab in Cambridge, and I think I was really annoying because I always insisted that I had to understand exactly what it was I was doing rather than just sort of follow a recipe. Mm. Um, but I got a kind of working knowledge of biology, I guess, through through that, and then ended up doing a, 
a degree at, uh, at Plymouth, um, where, you know, I was really drawn to the fact it was a very kind of experimental, um, um, it's kind of ex experimental psychology uh, emphasis. Um, and although I, I loved the social psych side of things, and uh, yeah, I still do, um, I'll, I, you know, I'd spend hours and hours in the library, just sort of, you know, in these days, there's nothing online. So I would just like find, look at a paper and then I'd find something in the, in the, um, in the, in the sort of book of contents and think, I think that looks really interesting and I'd go and find that. And I'd end up sort of getting lost there for hours. Um, and, but I became much more interested in the biological side. Uh, and then sort of brain research, which I think led led to sort of you know, my my main area of interest. Yeah, it's fascinating. Thanks for sharing that about um, your grandma. I feel like it does set up your why very well into what you do. And so often stories like yours do come from a strong why. So I appreciate you sharing that because I actually have an uncle that's kind of going through and well, really struggling with it. Um, dementia right now so I want to talk to you a bit about that later because I'm sure you can give me some great knowledge around that topic but where actually when did you move to Australia when did Australia come into the yeah so um so I set I set up a lab well or rather I didn't uh, so, so sorry I'll start that bit again uh -huh. so I um I was working uh in um in Newcastle University and in the UK uh, in the UK, yeah, sorry, that's right. You always have to specify that. So um it was it was uh, Northumbria University, but it's it's based in Newcastle, uh, which is where I am now actually, for, for different reasons. And um so we were working, uh, I was working on um a particular function. Yeah. And the other main fuel for the brain, other than glucose, is oxygen. Um at the time. There was this this actually a, a third year student, Mark Moss, who's now actually um, head of department at the same university. Uh, so this is many years ago. Had been uh, to London. He said, "Ah, oh, everyone there is like buying these little canisters of oxygen to cure alcohol hangovers." <laughs> and uh, I was wondering, you know, I know you're doing this work on glucose. I wonder, I wonder if there's something there. So I, I sort of had this vague idea that. If glucose improved mental function, cognitive function, then maybe oxygen would do the same thing. So we designed these experiments where people would take a blast of this oxygen in a canister before learning a list of words or afterwards or before trying to recall them. Um, and we found a positive effect. So, you know, it was the first time we just had this this idea that what happens is that the the brain brain function is limited by the availability of fuel it's a little bit um, like having a barbecue and you know turning the gas right down um and you know not being able to cook properly but then you you know you whack the whack the gas up and you know you get you get this sort of um, activity which is much much better so so it seems like um and it's really strange because um because other tissue in the, even though the brain uses more glucose than most tissues in the body, it doesn't store any glucose. So other tissues like the liver and the muscle 
store this this form of well, they store the stuff called glycogen, which can break down break down to provide more glucose. But the brain has very few, if any, stores of glycogen. So weird design fault in the brain, uh, and so you provide more energy in the t- in in the form of glucose or oxygen. You can just lift that kind of lid uh, on cognitive performance a little bit. Anyway, so that was uh, that 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 was that, and then I got approached by um, a company that made um, herbal extracts. This was this was in this was still in Northumbria, and they said that their their customers were telling them that when they took um, ginseng and ginkgo biloba and other and other herbals, that it was improving their mental function. That they were like a bit felt a bit sharper. Mm. Um, I, you know, and, and since I was doing this work, looking at cognitive enhancement, um, you know, would would I be interested in um, maybe if they sponsored a PhD or something just to see if this was true? So I I was very very skeptical. Actually, you know, it was yeah, this is bullshit. There's no <laughs> way that they're going to work. So I, you know, I sort of said, well, I'll take your money, but. You've got to let me publish a series of experiments showing that they have no effect. Oh, wow. And of course, I was, yeah, I was completely wrong. It was, you know, this sort of very um, perverse pleasure that you get as a scientist where you prove yourself wrong. In this case, it was you know, great because what happened was that um, we found that these herbal extracts did have benefits. And of course, once I read, the, the sort of you know the, the physiology and all of the other studies that have been done on on these extracts that wasn't a, you know shouldn't have been a surprise um so that was yeah that was a bit of a lesson as well i think in terms of just um being a bit more open-minded about these kind of things and so um that that coincided with some legislation that came in in europe which seemed to be saying that if you wanted to make a claim from a herbal extract, you had to have some good scientific evidence to support it. Mm. And so just by a happy accident, my lab happened to be the, the one that was doing this work. So that led to um, a lot of collaborations with, with industry, um, which which has funded you know, probably about 50% of my research over the years. Um, and then, yeah, that was fine, but I, felt like I was banging my head against the door a little bit with um in terms of getting funding for some really big trials and um I got a I got approached by Swinburne University in Australia to um yeah to, to take a position there I was by then I was a, a full professor and um yeah they 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 basically made me an offer I couldn't refuse so I ended up heading heading back heading down to Melbourne in um 2007 and uh, that led to uh, you know being director of a lab called the center for human psychopharmacology which was yeah pretty big you know 40 people um really um dedicated to this to this area um, right. both both the sort of ups and downs i guess of mental function so some work on uh, drugs and driving and um alcohol which i was very peripherally involved in but then also, you know, work looking at the effects of nutrition and nutrients and components of food, whole diets on 
particularly cognitive function. Yeah. Wow, it sounds like such an incredible story. There's so many things I want to unpack from what you just started with. One, I want to, when you spoke about the legislation, making sure that I guess what businesses and corporations and um, people who create products, the legislation around it in Europe, is it the same all around the world? Because I feel like that must be something as a scientist like yourself, it must boil your blood when you see other brands make claims that they do really good things when they don't have the scientific research. How does that make you feel? Yeah, I mean, it's you're absolutely right. It's a great question. Um, the it, it's, a, it's an absolute mess. So there's... Um, the legislation varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. There's some, you know, it's tougher in some places than others. In some some places, there's a, um, you know, it's it's very strict. You have to do the studies on the local population because there may be some sort of specific. Um, you know, sort of differences between populations geographically, um, and the problem is it's, it's it's proven very hard to legislate against. So you know, I know I'll, I'll give you a specific example. I did some work on a um, a curcumin product. So this curcumin is um, uh, a component of turmeric. It's what gives it the, the bright yellow color. A lot of brightly colored foods. Yeah. <laughs> So brightly coloured foods have, yeah, tend to ha have a lot of these um, uh, anthocyanins, and which is a uh, maybe we'll talk about it later in context of, um, of our EPA. But the um, but anyway, we we found some quite compelling results in a couple of studies um, restricted to slightly older people, so people in their late sixties, seventies improving um, an aspect of, of cognitive function called working memory sort of this is when you hold information online say um you know say you uh, you get a uh, not many people using these but you, know, you get a new sort of credit card with a pin yeah and you know, i've got to remember that four digit number so you rehearse it over and over again so you're going to remember it for a new phone number um and when you are rehearsing that information, you're using working memory. It's very important for day-to-day -day function. Um, and this was a very specific um, product, which was treated in a specific way to make it what we call very bioavailable, meaning it gets into the body. And, and we, we found out it gets into the brain through um, activation. So um, that, you know, once that those papers came out, they got quite a lot of media attention and people were making all sorts of claims for their own curcumin products, which don't have the same level of bioavailability. Or, and even um, I heard that in Melbourne that um, turmeric lattes, um, you know, so sold out and they couldn't get enough turmeric milk. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, although you know it's it's not such a you know, people like to think that the more kind of natural side of things is better. Actually, when you just take um, you know, native turmeric in a milk, very little of it gets into the brain or the body. Most of it just goes straight through you. So that so that yeah, that's a good example. And it's the same with you know uh, the. There have been studies that have shown um, when they've gone into 
um, shops that sell herbal supplements, for example, and just an, done an analysis of the things that are selling that there are many products with, say, um, the, you know, which is sold as ginseng, and they don't contain any ginseng at all. So it's quite, you know, it's, it's, it's very frustrating. Mm. And then I think, you know, obviously what's happened more recently is that there's a huge effect of social media influencers yeah who will cut you know you know they they'll sort of say oh i use this particular product and um you know it's used in marketing and more often than not there's absolutely zero evidence behind it um and so when you look at you know and that that is really why i think um in in, in sort of more recent years as i've got a bit old <laughs> bit long in the tooth um i've i'm much more interested in trying to help uh industry try and use evidence properly yeah so that's, that's working right. directly with companies but also you know in sort of more of a consultancy role as well so that's yeah that's kind of where a little yeah i'm still doing a little bit of um academic work but mainly what i'm doing is trying to you know, translate evidence for you know to make sure that hopefully the public yeah. understand what works and what doesn't yeah speaking of influencers trying to sell stuff a rapper does sponsor my <laughs> thing but you designed this one so everyone can trust that a rapper was <laughs> well <laughs> I think um yeah uh I, I did help to design it and one thing about rapper and, and yeah the companies i do work with is that they are um you know they want to yeah they get behind the science yeah so which that's something i wanted to chat to you about leaning off the back of what you said now trying to bring the science into products how does that make you feel just personally as a person knowing that your research you're at the forefront of this research and you're discovering things that are quite literally going to make people's lives better live longer and happier how does that make you feel do you take well, much? I think if it, uh, I think if it's, um, if it does have that kind of impact, um, then I'm, you know, I'm very happy, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's sort of, uh, it's very easy to become obsessed with. I mean, and you see it in academia a lot, where people become obsessed with their, um, you know, how many publications they've got and how many grants they win, and you know that that. In fact, there's um, <laughs> what one uh, indication of uh, a um, of how good a paper is, a scientific paper is, which journal it's in. And the journals have these things called impact factors, which show how many times they're cited effectively. And um, there was a study which put researchers into uh, a brain scanner and found that if they, if the experimenters sort of mocked up a paper with their name on it, that was published in a really high impact journal like say nature that it lit up the reward center of the brain 
uh-huh. in the same way as sort of drugs and sex and food do. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think it's it's quite interesting that sometimes these sort of sometimes quite arbitrary measures of your academic worth become a bit fetishized i think i mean and, uh, you sound like a very humble guy <laughs> well i don't i don't know about that. but um it's uh you know i think i've just i think look you you find this a lot that when people are sort of um you know uh, more towards the end of, than the beginning of their career shall we say mm-hmm. that um you, you quite often see that People become a bit more interested in trying to translate their work, yeah, or hopefully for you know for the benefit of of um, people, you know, so-called end users of these products. Yeah, well, we're going to get into talking about our reference and products, but let's um yeah let's go into the pharmacology and everything behind it now. So the first question I wanted to start with because this will kind of lead us into it. Obviously, I'm. A mental health kind of guy and speak about mental health so i wanted to talk about the correlation between cognitive decline and mental illness and then we can kind of go on to talk about the importance of taking care of our brain with certain products and exercise and blah 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 so yeah what from your research is the correlation between like people's brain declining based on the way they treat it and mental illness i think they can coexist but, but generally, um, the two are are sort of separable. Yeah. So when we yeah. talk about, um, yeah, I guess my main area of interest is is um, cognitive decline. So the sort of age relates. Well, two two sides of it. One is actually just trying to optimize mental performance. Yeah. on a day-to-day level and 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 that is i guess the key word there is performance so this is yeah. you know being sharp um being somewhere you know close to that that sort of flow state rather than yeah. say you know great brain fog which i guess we've all experienced over the last few years um and it's it's so, so that i think in terms of the um of the, the the sort of spectrum of high and low performance that can be completely separate to mental illness and mental health. Yeah. Now, having said that, what is quite interesting is that many of the interventions which are effective for optimizing mental performance also uh, seem to be effective for improving mood. Mm. So, and and I think in both cases, but particularly in, in sort of mood, we've we've kind of moved away from this binary distinction of whether people have or do not have um, a mental illness, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And we know we know that you know if you look at um, you know DSM five, which is this bible of diagnos- diagnosis for mental disorders. Pretty much everything now is on a continuum. Mm. So rather than saying, um, you know, there's this, this binary distinction between illness and health, you can see that there's a continuum. And the further you move along that continuum towards illness, the more at risk you are. So if anything that can 
pull people in the other direction, even, you know, um, anything that can pull people in the other direction is going to protect against the risk of mental illness and cognitive decline. Interesting. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. Quickly, because you you mentioned it, has it been difficult to find something or like a supplement or whatever that enhances short-term performance but also the long-term, because I can imagine there's quite a few things, I mean, just off the top of my head, like caffeine and stuff that'll give you a spike, but then does have a detrimental effect to our brain long-term. So you spoke about the importance of trying to find um, a way to improve performance, but then I can imagine there's quite a lot of products that have a negative effect on the long-term. So yeah, what's been the main focus for shifting from just performance to longevity too? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the The answer is, I think, um, well, let, let, let's look at caffeine as an example because I think that, that's... A lot of people drink coffee. It can relate. It's been researched for a long time. And um, so caffeine itself is, a, you know, is an interesting drug. We pretty much know how it works. It affects a, uh, a particular recept- receptor in the body, so caffeine. Caffeine, so, so there's a, a substance in the body called adenosine. We have receptors on pretty much every, every part of the body, but they are concentrated more in different areas. Um, and adenosine is a, this molecule that circulates around the body. It fits into these receptors that are littered all around the body, um, a bit like a key in a lock. Yeah. And adenosine itself causes sleepiness so as it accumulates during the day and it's more and more particularly um you know in the evening and and at night it's one of the factors it's not the only one but it's one of the factors that helps us to sort of uh you know shut down if you like and and promote sleep Uh caffeine fits into the same receptor so it's like a key in the lock yeah it's it's a key that doesn't turn so all it does is block adenosine from getting in there so that sort of signal to um to become sleepy is blocked uh-huh. yeah yeah, yeah. So the key he can't get into the lock if you like um so that's you know that, that that's yeah. sort of how caffeine works uh-huh. but it also has you know some other effects in that it's um it's what we call a, a vasoconstrictor so it narrows the blood vessels so the the blood vessels which supply the brain which is as i said one of the most greedy is a very greedy organ so it has a really rich blood supply so so anything that restricts that blood supply is bad for cognition and actually probably even perhaps surprisingly even more so for mood and so, I mean, what you get with caffeine is it has a kind of a, a chemical effect. The chemical effect is due to this aden- adenosine effect where it sort of increases um, the neurotransmitters that are involved in you know, brain arousal, waking up the brain. Mm-hmm. But then it has this negative effect, which is to do with you know, narrowing blood vessels. Um, but the chemical effect kind of wins out because we know that caffeine makes you alert, but then, you know, that kind of 
yeah, that kind of tension that can occur following caffeine is to do with the narrowing of the blood supply to the brain. Okay. okay? Yeah. But what's interesting is that in nature, there are a number of, um, of, of compounds, particularly these compounds called uh, flavonoids, uh -huh. which um, have the opposite effect. They tend to uh, widen blood vessels. Yeah. So, yeah. so what you find, yeah, and and interestingly, if you look at the way in which we ingest caffeine, generally, you know things like coffee, yeah. tea. You know, there's a South American um, plant called guarana, um, which is in some energy drinks. All of those contain um, these these compounds which widen blood vessels. So you've got kind of the, you know, we've sort of maybe learned somehow, or maybe it's a coincidence, but the way in which we tend to take caffeine is uh, is is in a form which counters that narrowing of the blood vessels. So we get a, a maximum effect. The, the exception would be things like you know if you take just take caffeine as a pill, yeah. or or um, in energy drinks, it tends not to have that. Um, so, so that's you know that, that that's I think a good um, a good example. But in general, there there are also sort of different targets which potentially improve cognitive function and mental function. Yeah. And we have targets that are acute, very short term, which you talked about. So, really, anything that improves blood flow to the brain. Uh, widens blood vessels, anything that um, affects a number of neurotransmitters, which we know are involved in this arousal or attention, are likely to have these acute effects. Um, the longer term effects can also be due to modification of neurotransmitter systems, but also um, other other factors. So we know because the brain is so energetic mm -hmm. it's very susceptible to what, what's called oxidative stress so this is damage from um this is damage that's protectable well, i guess most people have heard of antioxidants yeah so this is what antioxidants protects against because the uh -huh. brain is sort of, uh, so sort of uses so much energy it's so metabolically active uh it tends to produce a lot of um these components like free radicals which can damage the, the tissue and it's also prone to um inflammation yeah and so any component of diet or you know, or, or, or other um kind of more drug type effects which which reduce uh which are antioxidant or anti-inflammatory are likely to have longer term benefits to brain function oh. and they you know so they they tend to be a bit longer term because we know, for example, that as we age, um, the, the body and particularly the brain becomes susceptible to um, so-called sort of low-level chronic inflammation. Uh -huh. So, um, so anything that that can protect against those sort of effects is likely to have a longer-term effect on the brain. Interesting. 
What about I mean, going off just the inflammation thing? Do you know much about ice baths and ice um, cold therapy and the effects of that on the brains? So, I mean, uh, I, mean I, I I know a little bit about the um, yeah the sort of cold cold shower literature, which yeah. seems to show a number of um, of health benefits. And I haven't seen anything directly on brain function, but yeah. I would guess that there, there would be some some effects there. We'll look, I'll look into that with um, myself, but I've got lots I want to talk to you about, but I'm, I'm conscious of your time, so I want to try and pick the f- few questions that I really want to ask. Psychedelic drugs and how they affect the brain, it's something that has been, it, it, it seems to go through waves of like it's so bad for you and now there's like some great documentaries out there um, for mental health therapy with things like psilocybin and MDMA and LSD. What's your take on that? Is that something that you have much knowledge around? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a, it's an emerging area. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the work looking at the psychedelics on, um, on um, you know, um, treatment resistant depression, yeah. for example, is really compelling. I think it's, yeah. you know, and I think uh, if you look at the work of somebody like, um, you know, David Nutt um, in the UK, um, it's it's very very you know these these are people who you know over decades may have tried you know several different antidepressants with no effect and um, there's a growing body of literature now showing that um, that that psychedelic therapy like psilocybin therapy is seems to be very effective. Um, because the trials have been really restricted, we don't know what the long-term yeah. effects are. Um, and I, I don't mean, I, I think it's unlikely that there'll be damaging effects, but we, we just don't know yeah. what the um, level of relapse will be. Um, yeah, but, but some people you know, seem to be not cured, but are certainly um, st- still in pretty good shape sort of, you know, a year or so after the couple of sessions and i think it's important to realize that this this isn't um i think at first at first yeah if you if you just have sort of look at it superficially i think it's easy to think well yeah what's happening you know these people are going and having this basically having a trip yeah and feeling really great and that's making them um and so that you know that that's what's causing this benefit it's nothing like that at all from from my understanding it can be a extremely traumatic experience it's a sort of guided um guided kind of recessing but the, i think the current consensus is that possibly what's happening here in the brain is that it's acting a little bit like um yeah. electroconvulsive therapy ect where, which you know used to be quite popular and, and still is in australia um, where it seems to be somehow resetting the brain. Uh-huh. Um, but the key difference, of course, is that during psychedelic therapy, this is you know, the, 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 the person is conscious. Yeah. So it's, it's almost um, seems to be allowing them to just process um, some aspects of, you know, some, some some of their thoughts and cognitions in a very different way. And in fact, we, you know, I think 
there is emerging work suggesting that um, part of what happens is that we have these these sort of default network in the brain. So when people's are sort of when you're not doing much and your mind's just wandering and you're daydreaming, there are these two hubs in the brain, um, uh, sort of posterior hub at the back and then a, a frontal hub, which kind of keep different aspects of processing separate. So one is involved in kind of planning and thoughts, and the other is more to do with things like um, uh, vision and um, proprioception, so things happening in space and and touch and feel exact etc and of course during sort of everyday function you need to keep those separate but what happens during these um during the psychedelic therapy is that those hubs seem to be um that, that sort of constraint seems to be removed uh -huh. and so there's a diff different way of processing things so in terms of a kind of psychedelic recreational experience that's sort of seeing yeah uh, you know, hearing colors or seeing you know different patterns with music but in in the context of therapy it just seems to allow some kind of you know different processing of experiences to wow. to, to sort of reset the brain yeah. i hope i know no no that's that fascinating i find it so interesting just i had another um a neuroscientist on a young lady actually from the UK named Dr. Nicole Vignola. She's awesome. But we spoke about a lot of neuroscience stuff. And I also spoke to a doctor from America, a pharmacologist, and he spoke a lot about um, psilocybin and BDNF and all this stuff. But yeah. um, there's other things I want to quickly chat to you about. And alcohol is something. Yeah, so I've, uh, I've taken it. I've actually, after speaking to Nicole, the other neuroscientist I had on, she spoke to me about the effects of alcohol and um what it has on the brain. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to take a year off. So I'm actually 14 weeks into a 12 month right. of drinking. Is that good for my brain? <laughs> yeah. I mean, definitely. There's no question about that. So, um, yeah, I guess and it's not what it's doing to our brain. And then I know you've done a lot of research on the effects it can have when you're hung over that your driving still impaired, even if you don't, if you blow zero, like, yeah. Do you want to explain yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so there are the kind of, I mean, there, there, you know, there's a sort of, there's the effects of intoxication yeah. and that kind of, we know that, um, so, we, I mean, what, one thing we know happens is that the, um, the, the frontal part of the brain has these pathways which are involved in kind of reining in certain sort of more, um, Back, you know, sort of basic brain processes, which is to do with sort of you know survival. Yeah. Um, and so, one thing we know is that when people are intoxicated, that inhibition is released, and so you get people in, involved in more sort of risky behaviour. People who would, yeah, never even think of getting into a car when they were. Um, yeah, intoxicated might do it because they're intoxicated yeah. if that makes sense um you know risky sexual behavior um aggression those sort of things um can occur and then just the risk of sort of falls and damage then there are a lot there are the longer term effects on the brain where we're looking at things like if you look at the 
you know, a, a, a post-mortem of uh, you know, a, a brain of somebody who's sort of been an alcoholic compared to somebody who hasn't. You know, you can just see it by eye, the, the, the atrophy, the shrinking of the brain. And then I guess the thing that I've um, researched a fair bit is looking at alcohol hangover um, just because it's very under-researched. And um, this is with a few colleagues, people like Joris Verster um, in, in the Netherlands, who's the sort of yeah, the leading light in this area, showing that things like um, if if you're hungover, as you were saying, yeah, if you're driving a car, you're as impaired as if you're over the drink driving limit. But if you were pulled over by the police because you were like, driving a little bit, you know, weaving a little bit on the road, um, you probably would blow zero. You'd show no no effects in a breathalyzer. Mm. Um, and, and again, actually, it looks like, yeah, there are, there are many, many factors involved in this, but one of the key ones seems to be um, inflammation again. So, so alcohol is a toxin, so the body mounts a kind of... Um, an immune response to it, if you like. So all of these inflammatory markers are released and they seem to remain a bit longer and probably um, are involved in these cognitive deficits that occur with um, with hangover. Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating. And you can probably comment on this too, that alcohol is probably one of the most marketed to us things in the world. And like you said, it's quite literally a toxin. Like if they sold a bottle that had a poison logo on it, that's literally what alcohol is. And it's the most, it's, it baffles me. I mean, I'm a part owner of yeah. a company, so I can't say much, but by not drinking for the last 14 weeks, I've just seen so many parts of my life improve from like my brain fogs cleared up a lot. There's just a lot of positives that have come out of it, but it's obviously so good for, for me in the long term. What would be your not recommendation, but for someone who does drink quite frequently, what would be your, maybe your warning to them as to a reason why maybe they should slow down a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think with any of these things, it's to do with um, just trying to make small changes. Yeah, and those small changes can you know can can accelerate, I think, and become larger changes. But you know, I think it's also to do with if you're you know maybe. If you're trying to abstain and then you don't don't think that's a failure if you, you yeah. just have one drink or a, a license to sort of go back into really bad habits yeah um you know that i would also highly recommend a book um i've already mentioned david nutt but he his book called drink um is a really excellent explainer of the negative effects um of alcohol and um yeah it, it's really good and and to your point um one section which he argues very strongly is that if alcohol just was um yeah if somebody just discovered it today there's absolutely no way that it would be available yeah you know it would be kept in the poisons cupboard in a lab somewhere <laughs> So that's, uh, you know, I think that's that says it all really. Isn't that so fascinating? It's crazy. It's something yeah. I, that blows my mind. But um, a few last quick ones that I want to talk about. How diet affects our brain? Because I know that's something that you do speak quite a lot of. How important is our diet and making sure we fuel our body right? And what are some 
recommendations of maybe foods or supplements that people should be aiming towards to take better care of their brand? So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's probably not a surprise to many people that really a, a good diet is something which re- can protect the brain. And the, the current shorthand is people say, yeah, what's what's good for the heart is good for the brain. So um, things like yeah, plenty of vegetables, particularly highly colored vegetables and legumes, um, yeah, nuts, oily fish. Uh, minimize alcohol Um, I think you know there is some work suggesting that very low levels of alcohol may you know may be okay Um, I always have to sort of append that that sentence by saying if you don't drink please do not start drinking low levels of alcohol (laughs) because you think it might be protective because uh, it won't and um, the yeah, and, and so the Mediterranean diet is a is a really good example, but there are similar ones. Mediterranean diet is um sort of yeah, whole grains, as I said, plenty of fruit and vegetables um and fish, particularly sort of cut colored veg. So, you know, there's this idea of um a sort of rainbow diet. So yeah. work um that I, I'm involved with with my colleague Andrew Papingas um is looking at how diet that kind of diet combined with a small amount of exercise can protect against dementia yeah um we know from a, a lot of trials that have been published over the last five five years or so that um this really can make a significant difference yeah but it's not just what you um what you do eat it's also what you don't eat yeah so again highly processed foods um foods which are high in saturated fats are um you know a very a, a worse for the for the brain so you know it doesn't mean you have to be really frugal but you know if you can try and minimize those really highly processed high fat fast foods etc uh and substitute them for for whole foods for for fruit and veg then you you know you're, you're doing much better for your brain and that's not just in terms of cognitive performance and cognitive and protecting against cognitive decline there's also um a lot of work showing that that is really really good for mental health so um felice jacker and her group at the food and mood center at deakin university have done a lot of research in this area showing that things like the Mediterranean diet are um, are good in terms of um, minimizing uh, depression and and anxiety. So um, I think there's a lot that can be done by just a fairly simple modification of your lifestyle. Yeah, I think a lot of people, like you know when you're eating good and it, it's crazy to think like the last 50 years how supermarkets have all gone to like how can we extend the shelf life. It's like so much food that we put in our body is just like poison and you can just tell when you see it. You're like they're making yeah. products so it can last on the shelf longer to make more money. It's like food is like moving from something that is made to benefit us to something that's made to benefit somebody's pocket. But yeah. A brand that isn't doing that, and it's going to be a good segue to bring us to our last little line of questioning, is a rapper. A rapper 
your little brain function drink. So maybe do you want to tell us um, what's in it and why? I've told the people, I've told everyone a lot about it, but you're the lead neuroscientist who, um, yeah, developed this amazing formula. So yeah, maybe like how'd you meet the team first and then where did the idea come up with the New Zealand Neuroberry drink? Um, well, I was approached by um, by Angus, who's the CEO. Um, yeah, the had him on the podcast recently. I screwed up the okay. audio. I feel bad. I stuffed the audio, but it's still out there. It's a great episode. But, um, yeah, he does speak very highly of you and how lucky he was and felt very stoked that you took them on board rather than some of the other people who were chasing Yeah, so, so um, Angus and, and Zach contacted me um, I mean, I can't remember how many years ago it was, but I mean, what what I was really impressed was was that they were um, they really wanted evidence based yeah. input. So I, you know, I I I get lots of these approaches about being involved in in companies, um, most of which I turned down, all of which pretty much. And the reason um, that I was so impressed actually was because they they did want to follow the evidence and the science mm. um and uh you know they they sent me a, a bunch of papers showing you know there's a couple of smallish studies showing that it improves that, that the berry itself the berry juice yeah. the neuroberry is the cultivar um improves aspects of mental function so particularly uh attention and alertness um, uh, and aspects of working memory, which I talked about before. Now, um, and then the other thing that was really compelling about it was that these these berries are absolutely loaded with anthocyanins, which is a a type of um, a a compound in certain um, fruits and vegetables, which we know is is responsible for their health benefits, Um, but also loaded with vitamin C, which again we we know improves cognitive function, um, particularly um for example, you know, post-surgery. So when when the brain sort of had a little bit of a when the body's had a little bit of a um a hit, it tends to, you know, it helps to recover um cognitively. So you know those sort of things can cause a lot of uh, brain fog and and so it's got the anthocyanins, it's got the vitamin C um it's got the kind of evidence from cognitive tests in the lab um but and then the other thing is it has this very interesting property which is that the um it, it, it inhibits an enzyme called monoamine oxidase so it's a monoamine oxidase inhibitor and this isn't sort of you know i sometimes get these papers to review where you know, somebody's got these neurons in a petri dish and they treat them in a way that makes them sort of, you know, a bit compromised. And then they throw on some extract of an exotic plant, uh, probably more than you could consume in a year. And they find that the neurons recover and say that that's, neuro, that's, that's neuroprotective. Yeah. Whereas with the um, Arepa work, what they what they did was they they actually gave the, the juice to humans and measured these um, levels of these enzymes in the blood. And so from those studies, they showed that in humans, this 
monoamine oxidase inhibition kicks in within 15 minutes and you can still measure it four hours afterwards. Wow. And the levels are, you know, and, and so the net result of this inhibition of monoamine oxidase is an increase in particularly in three neurotransmitters. Um, one is uh, dopamine. So dopamine we know is involved in, in, in sort of reinforcement and mood um, and motivation, as is one of the other neurotransmitters that increases, which is serotonin, yeah. 5-HT. And then the other one is um, noradrenaline or norepinephrine in, in the US. Depending, it's, a, it's the same thing. And um, increasing nor noradrenaline increases arousal and 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 sort of aspects of motivation, for example, and so that combination of these different components means that the um, you know, the, the, the berries themselves are are um, very you know have got this fairly unique berries, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you know they asked me to sort of say, well, what else could we put in there just to hit those other. Things. So one is um, a component of uh, green tea called theanine. So theanine we know um, improves in the brain. It improves. It's quite strange because it improves relaxation, but also performance. So it kind of puts puts people into this sweet spot where they're able to. Um, if you've ever been in a flow state yeah. where you're feeling really relaxed. And but you're dealing with all of these incoming stimuli and you're you know maybe multitasking or or whatever. Um theanine seems to, you know, it doesn't just switch you into that state, of course, but it seems to push people in that direction where um they're able to particularly ignore um aspects which are not to do with the task that they're they're focusing on. So that's um so it's it's got and, and the other thing is. You know, you see a lot of products that have low, they have theanine in, but it's almost like homeopathic levels. Whereas, um, you know, Angus was very keen that he wants to make sure it was a pharmacological level. So it's, you know, 200 milligrams of theanine is what vast or, you know, quite a big literature has shown to be effective in this sort of relaxation and improving attention aspects of cognition and mood. Um, and then the other component is um, enzogenol, which is a, a, an antioxidant, which comes from a, um, the bark of the, uh, a pine tree, of all things. Uh, but you know, again, you know, there's a, a, a quite a bit of research on on enzogenol and related products, um, show that it improves things like working memory, but also has that longer term antioxidant effect. So. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff in there. In the drink, um, you know, and, and there's also a ton of more recent research, which I'd love to talk about, but I can't because it hasn't been peer reviewed yet. It's not out there in the public domain. I'm very, um, I'm very uh, strict with myself about. No, no. Um, that's but, um, cool because that's going to bring, that'll bring me into this little part of the question that I want to tie in um, to sort of finish up today. When, so with, I speak about it a lot of the podcast, the idea that there's been millions of dollars of clinical studies and research gone into a REPA. 
I have a pretty good idea because I do study this stuff a little bit, understanding how clinical studies and stuff work. But do you want to explain to the listener how a clinical study works to make to prove that a rapper works? Because people will be like, oh, yes. I mean, thank you. I, I would really relish that, actually. Yeah. Um, because it's not, I don't think we've talked about enough. Um, I should also say, by the way, that, you know, I am chief scientific officer. Yeah. Of our rapper, so I, I, you know, I want to make that be really transparent. Yeah. Um, but uh, so a good, good, a good clinical trial would be like this. So you would cut, first of all, it's registered on what's called the clinical trials registry, which is a where you you identify exactly what your what's called the primary outcome is, because if you have if you measure twenty different things, or yeah, you know, the chances are just by chance one of them will be affected positively or negatively. Okay. But the main thing is that the, the trial is, is performed um, using double-blind double blind placebo-controlled procedures, which means that um, half of the participants will get, say, a wrapper. The others will get a purple drink, which looks and tastes like a wrapper. It's indistinguishable, except it doesn't have the active components. And so uh, you don't know if you're a participant in the trial, you don't know which one you're getting. Mm -hmm. And I, if I'm the experimenter handing you the bottle and and testing your concentration, your attention, your short-term, long-term memory and mood, I don't know what you're getting. Oh, see, that's a, that's a good point. Data. Is that where the double blind means? So I always yeah, I never double blind is I never a single blind, blind would be know. uh huh. Yeah. So you get an like open label, yeah. which means that um, everyone knows. Yeah. Single blind would be that you as a participant don't know, but I know as an experimenter. Yeah. And there's a, a ton of research showing that just knowing that can influence the results, yeah. even though you, 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 know, you think that wouldn't happen. Um, so double blind means that neither the experimenter or the participant know what what they're getting. Awesome. So there's no bias. You know, there's no, you know and just you know, it's also quite interesting when you, yeah, it's one of the one of the issues around experiments looking at things like psychedelics and alcohol. Of course, is that it's pretty hard to blind the effects of those. True. So, but yeah, that's that's a separate issue. That's just a you know real um, yeah. It's a it's clearly a, um an issue in those sorts of but it, in these sort of studies that's it's you know you can see how effective that would be because the placebo effect itself is yeah can be really powerful mm. uh, maybe that's another podcast yeah. and um so and then the data are collected and the data are analyzed um or rather yeah the the database is locked so you know you can't then go in and sort of alter anything and say, oh, come on, that person looks like they've, um, yeah, they've they've underperformed, so we'll take their data out. That all, you can't do any of that. <laughs> the database is locked, and then all of the statistics are performed, again, double-blind. So all that the, the statistician knows is that participant has got 
either condition A or B. They don't know which is which. And then once all the analysis is done, you unblind the study. So that's a... How <laughs> <laughs> That's a kind of, you know, that can be a make or break because, you know, you hopefully... Um, you know, it's gone the way you want, but yeah, I've been in situations where there's been a significant result, and you know, you're ready to break open the champagne because often it's been can be years of work, mm. and then uh, it's it's the other way around to what you were expecting. Yeah, but even then, there's a kind of perverse pleasure in proving yourself wrong. So, yeah, I mean, um, you spoke about that at the start. How sometimes yeah. getting something wrong can lead to your biggest discoveries. Exactly. So, so that's um, th- yeah. so if you, if you see a study which is described as double blind placebo controlled, yeah. then you have more confidence in it being accurate as opposed to you know just anecdotes, of course. Yeah. Um, that that I think the the other aspect is that um, I mean you know that those sort of open label or mm. even just anecdotal evidence is a is a good start but you really need to have proper double blind placebo controlled trials yeah um to, to, to be confident that the effect you're saying is real um and so yeah and and in terms of our rapper they're now ongoing and Historically, the yeah, there's you know, sort of probably close to ten trials of that quality. So yeah, yeah, I think we I think we can be confident. Yeah, that's so cool, and that's why I'm like so proud to be sponsored and to be working quite closely with the team at Rapper because not only is it something that like you've talked about so much, going to give you this short term sort of focus, get you in the flow state it does also have some benefits long-term. Can you talk a little bit about maybe just quickly to finish up um, the long-term benefits of a repo? Well, yes, I think, I think they are more, um, you know, that they're, they're not as nailed down yet yeah. as the short-term benefits, but certainly we know that um, things like anthocyanin consumption is a really good predictor of um, protecting against cognitive decline. So, so um, our effort is loaded with these anthocyanins, these components, and we know that uh, if you look at a population level and follow people, say over ten years from the age of you know, mid sixties, we know that the people who consume more anthocyanins have less cognitive decline. Uh-huh. So, although that, and there are ongoing trials to test this directly, um, but we, you know, we don't have the data yet. Well, it's but, impossible uh, to have the data. The product's only been around for so long, exactly. so you can't have much longer data. But yeah, yeah. it's uh, um, but but for example, there's a, a really nice trial going on um, in New South Wales, um, whereas I, I mentioned earlier about how brightly coloured foods tend to have a lot of these. Um, these components, so it's fl- flavonoids, oh, nice. which anthocyanins is one. And um, uh, Karen Charlton is doing a, a study um, looking at the what she's calling the purple diet hmm. to see if that protects against dementia. And our EPA is a key component of that. So, um, and then the same with with um, 
Uh, vitamin C, for example, we know that people with high levels of vitamin C perform better. And so that that's something that, that can accumulate with um, abuse with, with, with products like this that have got that are loaded with vitamin C. Amazing. Well, man, this has been such a fascinating conversation. Like I said, I'm so grateful for your time. It's been incredible and we could probably talk for hours. Like I said, this stuff, stuff fascinates me. And like you said before, we've probably got a million more topics that you'd love to cover and we hopefully one day can cover. But, yeah, I'm going to pull the stumps here because I'm so conscious of your time. Um, but hopefully we get to catch up when you're back over in Australia in person one day and a rapper thing. And yeah, it'd be lovely to meet you because you seem like a great dude. And it's it's so nice to know that the heart's in it for the reason to try and make people's lives better, which is why I opened the story, getting to know a bit more about you. So thanks for sharing that. But the last question I do finish every Good Humans podcast with is, what does being a good human mean to Dr. Andrew Scully? <laughs> well, Cooper, before um, before I go into that, I think... Uh, yeah, thank you very much. I really enjoyed that. I hope I can come on again and maybe when we've got the long-term studies yeah. analysed, yeah. uh, I'm sure we'll have some exciting news for you there. Um, and thanks for actually some you know, really, really intelligent questions. That was great. Um, so what does being a good human mean? I think, you know, just treating people with respect, It's you know, and, you know, be honest. And, you know, I think... Um, also, just as a specific, I guess, career thing is yeah, give give people credit when credit's due. I think that's been important for me in terms of um, my collaborators and colleagues. But yeah, just uh, just be kind. I love that. It's beautifully put. It's it's a stumpy question. I've asked it to fifty eight people now, and you were up there. You were very quick and precise to answer. So well done. Probably had plenty of a refer this morning. <laughs> <laughs> actually i need some more i'm gonna have to get in touch with angus oh you'll get some more but anyway thank you so much for coming on um where can anybody find you if they want to are you on socials at all or just on twitter i think um right. yeah i'm i'm trying to sort of ramp ramp that up i'm on twitter at um at scoley so that's just s-c-h-o-l-e-y um and i've got a website which is andrewscoley.com Cool. I'll That's put all that in the notes anyway for yeah. people to look up how much of a legend you are. Like looking at your website, it's like it shows that you're in the top 0.0034% of researchers in neurotropics, fourth out of 11,800. So it's it's pretty incredible to get to have a conversation with you. You've had over 290 peer-reviewed papers, 25 book chapters, two books. You've done it all and it's an absolute privilege to chat to you. So thanks so much for jumping on Good Humans. Thanks. 